Good morning, Hellas Church. Thanks for being with us today and joining us at this time and in this space as we worship Jesus together. Uh, my name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of leading us to our study of the scriptures today. So if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to grab those and open up to Luke chapter 1. And as you are finding your way to Luke chapter 1, I want to ask you to consider what you are grateful for as you kind of move towards uh, the Thanksgiving celebration on Thursday, however that fleshes out for you with your friends and with your family. This is the time of year where many people are reminded uh, that we have a lot to be grateful for and we tend to think about God's blessing in our lives and, and we express gratitude to God for blessing us in a myriad of ways. Now, the blessing of God is something that can be misconstrued when we think about what it means to be a blessed person or a blessed People. I grew up in Louisiana, and so I heard uh, a lot in my lifetime people respond to sneezes with the words, bless you. And uh, it's a long tradition of saying bless you in response to someone who sneezes. And the reason for that is that back in the day, there was a superstitious belief that a sneeze brought you to the brink of death. And so if you sneezed and you kept breathing, you were blessed, right? You were still alive, and that is something that we should celebrate, and that is something that we should call out. But then there was another dynamic to being blessed in Louisiana was uh, this aspect of sometimes, uh, usually older people would look at younger people and say, oh, bless his heart or bless her heart. And they would normally say this in response to something that has aroused their pity for the person they're blessing. Oh, well, they struck out, bless his heart. Or they got a D instead of a B, bless her heart, whatever the case may be. And so this idea of blessing kind of caused me to feel like I was a pitiful person and I wasn't a prized person because everybody was blessing me in that way. But then if you were thinking about this more today and you were to go online and do a search on social media and just uh, type in a search with hashtag blessed, you're going to see all types of reasons that account for why people consider them to be blessed. You might see a new couple uh, standing in front of a home that somehow they're miraculously able to purchase in this climate and they take a photo and it says, uh, blessed, first time home buyers. Or you might find a situation where someone has decided to improve their health and so they began to diet differently and exercise differently and they have uh, before and after photos that they're freely posting on Instagram saying hashtag blessed and all these reasons that account for why people may be blessed in the world. And what I want us to do this morning is think about blessing in light of the story of Mary. And I want us to think about what God's blessing in her life drew out of her in response to her God. Now, if you've been with us the past couple of weeks, we've had a couple of weeks where we've talked about Mary's story, beginning when the angel Gabriel showed up on her doorstep and told her she would soon, that, that life with, for her would quickly change, that she would soon give birth to the Son of God, that this unwed teenage girl would have a baby, and that was considered to be a blessing despite what everyone else around her were thinking. Because the moment she began to show and the moment her pregnancy became public, people would quickly draw conclusions about what type of girl she was. And so in some ways, the fact that the Gabriel came to her life to bless her with this act of God and this work of God that would take place in her womb, that blessing would actually ruin her reputation. 
that God's a blessing did not lead to immediate excitement in terms of how she was viewed by the world around her. And it was such a confusing time that the angel Gabriel told her to consider Elizabeth's story because God had been at work in Elizabeth at the same time that he was at work in Mary, just in a slightly different way. Elizabeth wasn't a young teenage unwed girl about to give birth. Elizabeth was an elderly lady who's been barren all of her life, and yet Gabriel showed up in her life and said, you too are going to give birth. You too are going to have a baby. You're going to name him John the Baptist. He's going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. And so God was at work in her life as well. And so the angel instructed Mary to go and meet with Elizabeth so that together they could confirm the blessing of God in their midst and confirm the blessing of God in their lives. And so that's exactly what Mary did. She got up and she ran to Elizabeth's home and and she met with her. And there we're told in verse 42 of chapter 1 that Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and your child will be blessed. And so Elizabeth confirmed the fact that Mary was a blessed person. And then you go on to verse 45. She says again, blessed is she, referring to Mary. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. And so Mary's blessing is apparent to Elizabeth. But what constituted that blessing? What made her a blessed person? Well, it wasn't her life stage. Life for her was getting hard. So it couldn't be the fact that she was somehow uh, in a good situation because God's blessing is actually going to lead her in a more difficult situation as her reputation would be in many ways ruined in the world around her. There are accounts in church history of people in Rome who viewed Mary and considered her story to be a farce, that it was a lie, that she was not a virgin who gave birth to the Son of God. They agreed, yes, Mary had a baby, but that baby was the result of Mary hooking up with a Roman soldier. Or they would even say that it was the result of a Roman soldier who may have raped her. And so there were other explanations that people were giving for the birth of Jesus in the world. And whether she was a victim or whether she was promiscuous, whatever the case may be, her reputation was ruined because the blessing of God came into her life. That's a crazy thing to think about. That being blessed doesn't mean life is going to get easy for us and that our reputation is going to improve in the world around us. In many ways, God's blessing might bring the adverse reaction and the exact opposite effect. Being blessed Mary also means that Mary wasn't necessarily materially prosperous, that she wasn't, that God's blessing in her life did not mean she was going to climb the social ladder of the first century world. We know this because eventually her and Joseph did get married and they raised Jesus together. And there comes a time in Luke chapter two where Joseph and Mary go to the temple to worship God. And when they get there, they bring an offering that was called for because that's what worshipers did when they came into the presence of God, they brought something with them because they wanted to give to God in response to his work in their lives. But the thing was, Mary and Joseph were too poor to afford a flatty offering. And so they weren't able to bring a goat or a lamb or a ram or anything of that sort. That was something that wealthier worshipers were able to do in their offering to the Lord. The only thing Mary and Joseph could bring to God were two turtle doves. And two turtle doves was a provision in the law for people who did not have a lot. 
the Lord still welcomed their worship and they wanted to worship. And so they would grab what was common, what was easily accessible, and they would bring that to the Lord. So Mary's blessing wasn't attached to material prosperity. So what was it then? What was it about Mary's life that we could call blessed? Well, it was the fact that God has broken into her world. It was the fact that the Son of God was growing in her womb. It was a fact that God had come to her and that his presence would dwell quite literally within her in the person of Jesus. And that changes how we think about what it means to be blessed because that reality can withstand any other circumstance or any other situation that we may find ourselves in as we journey through this world. That the presence of God within us means we are blessed whether we are rich or poor, whether we are reputable or irreputable. The blessing of God is his presence in our lives. This is what Mary enjoyed. This is what Elizabeth is confirming in her. And then you think about you and I, and we think about who we are today as followers of Jesus. We know that we worship Jesus who has given us his spirit so that we have literally the presence of God dwelling within us. This is why we are a blessed people because God dwells within us and wherever we go he's with us he's for us and as we step into next week and start talking about Advent the coming of Christ celebrating God with us my prayer is that that reality would become all the more significant in your life and that you would become all the more sensitive to the fact that God's presence is in you and he is with you you are a blessed people because of the presence of God. This was what accounted for Mary's blessing. But then what I want you to do today is to look at verse 46. Look at verse 46 of chapter one, because this is where Mary responds. She's been blessed. That blessing has been confirmed. She is now pregnant with the son of God. And how does she respond to that reality? Well, what you find in verse 46 is Mary responding with what's called her Magnificat or her word of praise. Mary is worshiping in response to the blessing of God in her life, that she blesses the Lord. And what you're going to see are a couple of dimensions to her worship that I want us to kind of pray for and to pursue together as a church, that we want worship that has a depth to it. And we want to worship in a way that has a width to it. And you're going to find Mary's worship in this passage to be both deep and wide. And you'll see what I mean by that as we proceed. But first, I want you to see the depth of her worship in verse 46. When she's responding to this blessing in her life, she cries out, My soul praises the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. I want you to note just how personal this praise is. Five times in those verses, she uses the word me or my. And this is the depth of her worship. Mary's worship was deep in this moment because it was personal. It was deeply personal. It was 
her soul, her spirit crying out to the Lord because of what the Lord had been done for her, not in an abstract, generic sense, but in a concrete, specific sense. The depth of our worship is determined by the personal connection we sense with the Lord. It's when we come to acknowledge and recognize just how God is at work in us personally so that we respond in worship on that regard. And then she goes on to say now that her soul and her spirit is rejoicing and is magnifying and is praising and worshiping God because, I love this phrase, she says that he has looked upon me with favor. He has looked upon me with favor. And the word favor there is the word grace. In other words, a person's worship is an eruption that responds to the grace of God in their lives. The fact that the Lord looks upon us with favor. Now, the Lord is not looking upon any one of us with disdain. And he is not looking upon us with disappointment. He is not looking upon us with irritation. He is not looking upon us with frustration. The Lord is looking upon his people with favor, with grace. And that's good news for people who want to be seen so badly. We live in a society where everybody wants to be seen. This is why Instagram and TikTok are so popular. We want people to see us, and we don't just want them to see us, we want them to like us. And so we're checking our accounts over and over and over again, trying to count the number of likes an image is getting or picture is getting. We want people to see us, we want them to like us, all the while the God of the universe is saying, I not only see you, and I not only like you, I see you, and I love you. And when the Lord looks upon us, he doesn't see us according to the filtered images we present to the watching world around us. He sees us in our unfiltered capacity. He sees us in our rawness, in our realness. He sees us flaws and all, and still he looks upon us with favor. He's treating us according to his love and his kindness and his goodness and his grace. He is not treating us according to our flaws and our shortcomings. He's not dealing with us on the basis of our lowly estate. He's dealing with us on the basis of his grace. This is where Mary's worship becomes so deeply personal because she's aware that the the gaze of God has fallen upon her with favor. And this is what you and I get to celebrate today, that the Lord treats us according to his goodness, his grace, his kindness. He is looking upon us with favor. That's a remarkable thing. That's what we want to celebrate. That's what we want to worship in light of. But then Mary goes on and she says, not only am I worshiping because God is looking upon me with favor, she proceeds to celebrate both the bigness and the closeness of her God. The fact that God is both big and close. She refers to him as the mighty one and she recognizes that the mighty one's name is holy. That means other. That means unique. That means special, different. He's holy. But nestled between the mighty one and whose name is holy, you have this reference to him doing great things for her. 
You see, one of the breakdowns in our worship happens when we put a wedge between the bigness and the closeness of God. And our faith is only directed towards one aspect of who God is. So there are some who might worship God in light of his bigness only. And so they sing a lot of songs about God, celebrating who he is and what he is like. And and that's a good thing to do, but they never pivot towards thinking and celebrating the closeness of God, that he has drawn near to us in the person of Jesus. He has drawn near to us in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he is doing great things now. But then there's also people who might worship God in light of his closeness, but they never think about his bigness so that this language of fear and reverence and transcendence, that language that seems cold and irrelevant to them. But the moment we put a wedge between the bigness of God and the closeness of God, our worship becomes shallow. The depth of worship is also determined by our recognition that God is both big and both close all at the same time. This is what makes God so remarkable. This is what makes him so awesome and awe-inspiring. It's kind of like, you know, I've shared this with you before, but growing up, my favorite snack were peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and what makes a peanut butter and jelly sandwich so good is it's the combination of the peanut butter and the jelly. You don't want just peanut butter because if you just have a peanut butter sandwich, it's dry. It sticks to the roof of your mouth and it's hard to swallow. But at the same time, you don't want just a jelly sandwich because that's too sloppy. That's too messy. The integrity of the bread just kind of falls apart if all you have is jelly and bread put together. What makes a peanut butter and jelly sandwich so incredible is the combination of the peanut butter and the jelly. What makes the worship of God so deep and rich and life-giving is the fact that he is both big and he is both close. He's both big and close. In other words, God is not just a big God so that we only focus on his bigness to the point that our faith dries up. And we think, okay, yeah, he's big, but he's also remote and removed. But at the same time, we're not just focusing on his closeness so that we have a personal relationship with God to the neglect of who he is in his holiness and who he is in his sovereignty, because that just creates a messy, sloppy form of spirituality. No, what makes the worship of God's people in response to who God is deep and enriching and life-giving, worship like Mary is worship that that recognizes both the bigness and the closeness of God all at the same time. Now, as a pastor of the Hallows Church, I think our temptation over the years has to hit this aspect of who God is really hard. We focus a lot on the bigness of God, and we sing a lot about God. And if we're not careful, we're going to wander too far from the closeness of God. And when we wander too far from the closeness of God, our faith is going to dry up, and our worship will not run as deep as God's blessing intends for it to run. And so my prayer as a pastor as I've been meditating on this passage and even just processing what God is doing in my own life is is to get that pendulum to swing back in this direction. Not neglect of the bigness of God, but to recapture the closeness of God so that our worship is an eruptive response to his blessing, to his presence in our lives. And so as a pastor, the way that this has kind of played out in my own life, and maybe you can relate, is... I've been walking with Jesus for a long time. I've followed Christ as a Christian for many years now. 
I've been serving as a pastor for almost 10 years here at the Hallows Church. In February, we'll celebrate our 10th anniversary. And over the course of that time, what happens is you gain experience as a Christian and you gain experience as a pastor. What happens over the course of that time is that you get educated in ministry. You get educated about what church is like. Uh, I, I'm educated on the Bible. I, I did a lot of school in my journey up to this point. I have a lot of education. But if I'm not careful on a daily basis, I'll be living out of and acting out of my education or my experience rather than my communion with the real-time presence of God. And when my worship is shallow, when I'm feeling dry and distant, it's probably because I've been living out of those sources rather than out of my relationship with Christ. And in those moments, I have to return to the simplicity of my faith, thinking about what does it mean to abide in Christ and Christ to abide in me? What does it mean to be led by the Holy Spirit, to listen to him and to do what he says so that on a daily basis, I'm not acting out of education and experience. I'm acting out of my faith in the real-time presence of God so that I'm being led and directed, guided and shepherded by the Lord who is with me. And so when I think about who we are as a church, my prayer is to Get back to this dynamic so that our relationship with Christ isn't static, it is dynamic. That it isn't cold, but it is white hot because the presence of God is in us, working through us, leading us, guiding us, directing us so that our worship is a response of faith every time we gather together. So you have this the depth of Mary's worship as she thinks about God's grace towards her as she thinks about who God is, being the mighty one and whose name is holy. She's praising the greatness of the Lord, rejoicing in God, her Savior, and you and I have the joy of doing the same. But it's not just a deep worship you see in Mary's life. It, there's a width to her worship as well. Because the worship of God's people in response to God's blessing isn't just a personal experience. The worship of God's people in response to God's blessing is to be a shared or communal experience. This is why we say often that Jesus came into the world and he lived and he died, not just for a person, but for a people, not just an individual, but a community. And you see this shift from the depth of Mary's worship to the width of her worship in verse 50, because in verse 50, she sees herself as part of something much bigger than herself. Look at verse 50. She goes on. God's mercy is from generation to generation, the width of worship found there. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. So there's a shift from her personal deep worship as an individual and what God has done for her to a communal expression, 
a wide worship where she sees herself synced up shoulder to shoulder with other men and women of faith, not only those who were alive then, but those who preceded her going all the way back to the time of Abraham. This is the width of our worship. That when we worship God in response to his blessing, we are sinking into a reality. We are sinking into a story that has been taking place in the world for centuries. That our faith is real, it is present, it is dynamic, but our faith is also ancient. Our faith is deeply personal, but it is widely communal. This is why we form churches. This is why we follow Jesus together. Because there should be a width to our worship so that we're celebrating God's presence, not just in my life, but in your life as well. So that we come together on a weekly basis and we revel in the presence of God together, believing that he has worked not just in me, he's at work in we. And that's the difference between, that, that is what deep and wide worship consists of. It's worship that involves me and it's worship that involves we. And both have to be operating in our relationship with the Lord if we're going to grow and experience the blessing of his real-time presence. And so this is what Mary does. She shifts gears and she starts referring to all the people who have feared the Lord. Now, I don't know how that language strikes you, but she refers to those who fear God. And that word fear, it speaks to this idea of reverence. It speaks to an idea of awe. When we talk about fearing God, we're simply recognizing the fact that as human creatures, we are really small. And God is really, really big. Because those who fear God are described in three ways in this passage. Those who see God as big and themselves as small, that doesn't mean that they see themselves as insignificant. It just means they see themselves as small. And in our smallness before this almighty, holy God... In response to that, we become three things. We become people who are humble. We become people who are hungry. And we recognize that we are people who are helpless. If these are those who fear God throughout the history of God's people, those who would worship God in response to his blessing are those who are humble, hungry, and helpless. Now, the contrast to that is also found in this passage, and that is those who do not fear God. A person who doesn't fear God is someone who sees themselves not as small, but they see themselves as big. Someone who sees themselves not, or sees God not as being big, but as God who is functionally and practically small. And that's the contrast between those who fear God and those who don't. Those who fear God, I'm small, he's big. Those who don't, I'm big, he's small. Those who fear God are humble, hungry, and helpless. Those who don't fear God are proud, self-sufficient, and self-reliant. And these are the people that the Lord opposes all throughout Scripture. These are the people who cut themselves off from the blessing of God. So you see this when Jesus starts talking about his kingdom in Luke chapter 6. And he goes through what's called the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are these declarations of blessing. And you turn over to Luke chapter 6, and you'll see Luke's version of the Beatitudes, of these blessing statements, and listen to the people that he describes as blessed. Then looking up at his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, 
because the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are now hungry because you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now because you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. So who is he saying that are blessed? He's saying, well, it's the humble, it's the hungry, and it's the helpless. He's saying, these are those I look upon with favor because these are the types of people that fear me. These are people who see themselves rightly that they are small and I am big. And again, to be small does not mean to be insignificant. It just means to be small. And in the grand scheme of things, we are all small. But the flip side of that, those who are not included in God's blessing are those who are big, they are proud, they are self-sufficient, they are self-reliant. Now, one of the temptations as you study through the Gospel of Luke is to start trying to pit people against each other by virtue of what class they find themselves in this world. And some people have taken the gospel of Luke and they've so distorted its message communicating to, them, to others saying things like, well, the kingdom of God is about class. Is, it advocates for a type of class warfare because God seems to prefer the rich and, or seems to prefer the poor and not the rich, that the poor are blessed. Those who are materially poor are blessed. Those who are materially rich, they, they are not in the kingdom of God. But if we take the gospel of Luke, and even if we read the Beatitudes in Luke 6 that way, and we start demonizing the rich, and we start demonizing the wealthy, we miss the point. We miss the point of the gospel entirely because the kingdom of God isn't concerned with class warfare. The kingdom of God is concerned with spiritual warfare. A spiritual warfare that is constantly taking place, seeking to draw people away from humility and hunger and helplessness and into living a life of pride and self-sufficiency and self-reliance. That's the tug-of-war that all of us find ourselves in. And if we're not attuned to the presence of God, recognizing how big He is and how close He is, we're going to gravitate towards a life of pride, a life of self-reliance, and a life of self-sufficiency. Now, in Luke's gospel, the accent does hit the wealthy hard because the wealthy tend to be those who think much of themselves because they've accomplished a lot of good things. They've done a lot of great things, and so they can sometimes live lives as if they don't need the creator or they don't need the Christ and they don't need the spirit. And so the accent can sometimes hit hard on that end, not because God doesn't love the rich and not because God isn't, can't, is unwilling to bless the rich, it's because he's unwilling to bless those who are pride, self-sufficient, and self-reliant. But if we're able to see ourselves rightly in response to what God is doing in the world, we become the types of people, whether we have a lot or have a little in this life, we are those who are humble. God is big. I am small. We are those who are hungry. We want God. We need God. We're clamoring for God. And those who are helpless, we recognize we can't do anything without God. And so we're asking for his help. We're asking for his power. We're asking for his presence over and over and over again. And this is what makes the church a unique society on earth. The church is to be a community of people in a local, tangible, earthy context like this one. 
where those who are assembling together, those who are congregating together, those who are sharing life together, they come from all classes. They come from all races. They come from all backgrounds. But what they share in common is the fact that they are all humble, hungry, and helpless. That's what draws us together in community. That's what constitutes the church. We are those who are humble, hungry, and helpless. We need Jesus. We need his spirit. We're worshiping and responding in response to that reality as we journey together. And so what happens then as we gather together and begin to worship in this kind of the width of our worship as we're worshiping as a wide community, as a diverse community, as people from all walks of life, we come together and we worship Jesus. Understand that the kingdom of God is about unity in worship, not uniformity in worship. This is why a church can worship the same Savior in different ways. Some people like to sing old songs. Other people like to sing new songs. Some people like to read their Bibles in a hard copy like I've got. Others like to read their Bible on iPhone and technology. There are different ways that people are approaching the same God in churches today. But what is important isn't uniformity of worship, but unity in worship. I attended a conference last week, a men's conference in Dallas, Texas, at one of our partner churches, and it was a very unique experience in that we, it, was a, it was a multi-ethnic gathering, and we were led by multi-ethnic leaders who weren't just uh, multi-ethnic in terms of their race, but they literally spoke different languages uh, as, their primary, as their primary tongue. And so the way they built this together is we gathered together to worship all these men from different churches and different places all throughout the Dallas metro area. We came together and we sang songs, some of which were in English, and I could participate. But then there were lots of songs that we sang or that were sung in Spanish. At that point, I couldn't participate as much. But others were, and I was just listening to them, and I could tell by the melody that what, what the words were being sung, and, and so my heart could kind of lean in, and I could enjoy that moment, not because there was uniformity in the language that was being spoken and the, the language that was being utilized in the singing, but in the unity that we were all people rallying together because we were all, or all, small, recognizing that God is big. That we are a society filled with people who are humble, hungry, and helpless, not people who are proud, self-reliant, and self-sufficient. The width of our worship was remarkable. And so when we think about the Hellas Church and being a worshiping people, we want worship that is deeply personal and that is widely communal. It is worship that we engage as individuals, and it is worship that we partner together in as we worship Jesus as a community recognizing that we're just a little piece of a much bigger puzzle. And that's true of you as an individual. It's true of us as one single church in the city of Seattle, that we are part of something much, much bigger. So there should be a width of our worship that transcends time, transcends space, a width of worship that promotes unity, not uniformity, because we're rallying around our need for Jesus. And the need for Jesus is a need that every person has. And so when we talk about this idea of the dimensions of worship or worship dimensions, we're talking about a worship that's, that involves me and involves we. And I want to take you to one more verse to kind of accentuate this aspect in your life and to share a little bit more about what God's been doing in me. If you turn over into Romans chapter 12, verse 1, actually you don't have to turn there. We'll just 
pop it up on the screen. This is a word, this is a verse that is commonly used as kind of a banner rallying cry for Christian worship, for the church's worship. And it's a beautiful verse because it comes on the hinges of Paul's in-depth explanation of the gospel. He's been walking through the gospel, declaring what God has done for us in Christ, that he lived the life that we could not live, he died the death that we deserve to die, and he rose from the grave, conquering sin, Satan, and death. And then he talks about the Holy Spirit then being given to those who are trusting in Christ, and that the Holy Spirit is now at work within us in real time. So he lays that out, really across the first 11 chapters of of the book of Romans, but then he shifts gears and chapter 12, and he uses the word therefore. And he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, again, you see with there that all genders are being named, all genders are being acknowledged, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God. Another way of saying that, in view of what God has done for you in Christ, in light of the gospel, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Now, we see both the me and the we there, because I want you to notice how he says, I urge you to present your bodies. The word bodies is in the plural. And so it stands to reason that Paul is talking to individual Christians in that moment. As he addresses the church in Rome, he's saying, I want you to present your bodies. Every one of you has a body that needs to be presented. You have a life that needs to be given in response to God's blessing in your life. And this is something that everyone is responsible to do. Just as Mary and Joseph would bring their turtle doves to the temple in their worship, you on a daily basis are bringing your body to God. We don't offer sacrifices the way they offered sacrifices then because Christ has already done everything necessary to satisfy all of that. But what we do offer, what we bring and what we give is our bodies, your mind, your heart, your physical, literal body. You are coming to the Lord and presenting your body to him. But then look what he says next. He says, present your bodies, but then he says, as a, that is a singular living sacrifice. So he moves from the plural body to the singular living sacrifice, and this is where you begin to see the shift from the me to the we. When we're all presenting our bodies, we constitute one singular living sacrifice right here and right now. That as a church, as a people, we are a living sacrifice, a singular united people before God in our worship. This means that we are far more dependent upon one another for the vibrancy of our worship than we realize that I need you to be a person who's presenting their body to Christ on a daily basis. I need you to be a person who is prioritizing the people of God in your life and in your worship so that you're leaning in as to constitute and to make up a living sacrifice, to be a part of what we call the Hallows Church as we are offering ourselves to God as a form of our true worship. And so the me and the we, bodies, a singular living sacrifice, this is what I want to call you to do. 
I had a meeting with the elders on Monday night, and I put this before them, and, and I challenged them. I said, look, you realize this all starts with you and with me as, as leaders in the church. If, if we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, if our leaders aren't doing that, then the church isn't going to do that. And now I want to put it before you, and I want you to think about how even this week, you might open up Romans chapter 12, verse 1, tomorrow morning, and just pray through, what, is, what does this mean? How can I present my body to God in this moment? And I would encourage you to literally pray, God, I'm presenting my body to you. Holy Spirit, fill me up today. Tune me into your presence. Whatever language you want to use, present your body, your life to God every single day. And as you begin to encounter God and commune with Christ and have a vibrant relationship with him, then when we gather together next Sunday, we constitute a living sacrifice that we are offering up to God and we worship him in dynamic ways. The me and the we Those are the dimensions of worship that matter. Some of you are far too individualistic and far too independent in your Christianity. Others of you are far too codependent in your Christianity. And you're too dependent upon other people to make your life seem significant or to make your relationship with Jesus seem vibrant. But just as we don't want to put a wedge between the bigness of God and the closeness of God, we don't want to put a wedge between the meanness and the weeness of our worship. We want worship that is both deep and wide as we respond to God's blessing in our lives, and we know what his blessing is. Our response is in view of the mercies of God. It's a response to God coming down in Christ and doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's in response to a God who would look upon us in our unfiltered capacity, and yet he would still look upon us with favor. It's in response to a God who doesn't just like us, but a God who loves us. It's in a response to a God who doesn't just want to form us as individuals, he wants to form us as a people so that we don't live this life alone. It's a God who's drawing us together in a wide, diverse community where we are locking arms with people from every background. And one day we're going to do that in heaven when people from every tribe, language, and tongue gather together in the new heavens and the new earth and they worship Jesus. The depth and the width of worship will be readily apparent then. But the beauty of being a church today is that we can give people a glimpse of that now. We can lean into this now. And so my prayer is that that we would. This week, I want you to know that I'm praying Ephesians chapter chapter 3, verses 17 through 19 over you. And, And I want you to know that I'm praying this for our church. And I want you to listen to this prayer. Paul says there, I pray that you being rooted and firmly firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let me pray that over us now. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to know the the length and the width of your love. Give us grace to know the depth and the height of your love 
so that we may know, internalize the truth that you love us and that you are for us and that you are with us. God, would you fill us with your fullness? Would you give us your Holy Spirit? Would you meet with us daily? Walk with us daily. God, I'm thinking about Jesus who said, I only do what I see my Father doing. What would it be? What would it look like to be that kind of people in this city? Those who are not just acting out of their education or acting out of their experience, but those who are acting out of their communion with you, those who are so in tune with you that they only do what they see you doing. Living by faith on a daily basis, trusting in your grace on a daily basis, worshiping you in a deep and wide capacity. God, would you make us that kind of people in Jesus' name? Amen.